The Water Values Podcast is sponsored by the following market-leading companies and organizations. By Interra, innovation and stewardship for a sustainable tomorrow. By Xylem, let's solve water. By the American Water Works Association, dedicated to the world's most important resource. By Black & Veatch, building a world of difference. By Can Do, providing actionable insights from utility wastewater data to improve environmental and public health. By Mentor APM, intelligent asset management software built for water. By 374 Water, pioneering a new era in sustainability. And by Woodard & Curran, high-quality consulting engineering, science, and operations services. This is Session 214. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGibson. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thank you so much for joining me. I hope everyone's doing well out there and we have a terrific show for you today. Aaron Tartakovsky joins us to discuss water reuse systems, related policy issues, and importantly, how decentralized reuse systems can strengthen and provide resilience to centralized water systems. Aaron, of course, is the co-founder and CEO of Epic Clean Tech out in San Francisco. So it's a terrific discussion, and Aaron is an absolutely fantastic guest. Well, we always begin with a hearty thank you to our sponsors in Terra, Xylem, the American Water Works Association, Black & Veatch, Can Do, Mentor APM, 374 Water, and Woodard and & Curran. That, my friends, is a terrific collection of impactful companies that have decided to come together to support water industry thought leadership and education by supporting the podcast. So thank you all. And I'd like to for you to do me a favor, if you could, please, if you work for or with any of the sponsors, please thank your boss or thank your contact at that sponsor firm and tell them that you appreciate their leadership in the industry through the sponsorship. You'd be surprised how far that simple note of thanks will go. So thank you so much. And as long as you're letting the sponsors know you appreciate their support of water industry education and thought leadership, why not leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, CastBox, or whatever other podcast directory you're accessing the podcast on. It would be greatly appreciated and, of course, helps others find out about the podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on your podcast directory of choice. Now it's on to our feature guest, Aaron Tartakovsky. So let's get that water flowing. Well, Aaron, welcome to the Water Valley's podcast. Great to have you on. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. And it's a, it's an honor to be here as, as someone who entered the water industry seven years ago. One of the first things I did was started listening to podcasts, including yours. So this is a, this is a special treat. Yeah. Uh, well, it's great to always talk with, you know, uh, new minds that are coming and bringing new ideas to the water sector. So I'm, I'm, gr I'm very thankful that you've agreed to come on the show. So I uh, really appreciate it. You know, Aaron, can you tell us a little, give us a little background on who you are and uh, how you found the water sector? Yeah. So my name is Aaron Tartakovsky. I'm one of four co-founders at Epic Clean Tech. Uh, we are an on-site water reuse firm based here in San Francisco. Uh, you know, my my journey into the, the water sector was uh, a little bit topsy-turvy. So I, I formerly worked in federal politics and, uh, and you know, it was an interesting story uh, in, between my, myself and my co-founders, which we can get into. But, um, but yeah, you know, we've 
started from all four of our co-founders started from outside of this industry. But uh, I think having been in here for almost a decade, I've, I think I've, I've found my passion. Yeah. Awesome. So I, you, you kind of indicated that uh, none of you, uh, none of the founders of Epic clean tech were from the water industry. So what, what was it that caused you to gravitate to the water industry and what opportunity did you see in the water industry? Yeah. So, so here's the story. So one of, uh, so one of my co-founders, um, one day was, was upset, uh, when he received a fine for not cleaning up after his dog. So he was walking down the streets one day, uh, received this fine and decided that he wanted to come up with a new solution to clean up after dog waste. Uh, he went to his friend who was a nanobiotechnologist, one of our scientific advisors, uh, based out of Jerusalem. And basically they devised a high tech, uh, dog waste device that could pick up the dog waste. You dose it with a chemical and it very quickly turned it from a wet, smelly waste into a dry odorless pathogen free substance, which after testing turned out to be good for plants. This little dog device or uh, effectively a high tech pooper scooper, uh, got the attention of the internet as basically all things toilet and scatological do. Uh, they were then approached by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, who at the time were, were running something called the Reinvent the Toilet Challenge. And, and that challenge, you know, the basic premise of it is we have two and a half billion people worldwide without access to clean water and reliable sanitation. Much of the world uh, doesn't have the ability or, or the resources to be able to build out complicated underground water and sewer infrastructure that we have in, in most developed world contexts. So the, the, the initiative was how do we create decentralized approaches that could effectively mimic what happened in telecommunications, which is to say, you know, we went from poles and wires to cell phones, decentralized forms of, of communication. And so through that challenge, my, my co-founders uh, from Israel were designing high-tech toilet devices were presenting at a conference in California, where in the audience that day was my third co-founder, uh, who also happens to be my father, uh, Igor. Uh, so Igor is a Soviet-trained rocket engineer. He came to this country, moved into the building sciences, and basically said, you know, wow, these guys on stage wowing the audience with their dog poop and toilet innovations. I wonder if we can take what they're doing and scale it up into a building application. So essentially a system that could go into a high-rise building, let's say in downtown San Francisco, capture all of that waste, all of those wastewater organics and convert them into a usable product. And so that was about seven years ago when that sort of initial idea was formed. Um, I was brought in to be the middleman between this Israeli company, my father's company. Um, and, you know, I'd lived in Israel. I speak Hebrew. I used to work in federal politics. And a lot of the work I was doing was actually focused on issues like water scarcity in the Middle East. And, uh, and, you know, it was uh, at that point, it was basically off to the races. You know, we spent six months talking to anyone who had even a peripheral connection to what we were trying to do, where we basically said, you know, this whole notion of onsite wa wastewater recycling, is this a thing? Should we be doing this in buildings? And after speaking to a few hundred people, we realized that not only, uh, not only was this a thing, but in many, in many ways, this is where the water industry was moving. So, um, you know, the unlikely Genesis story, all going back to a, a little four-legged pug uh, on the streets of uh, Tel Aviv, Israel. But uh, here we are. <laughs> That's a great origin story. Maybe it's ready for the uh, the uh, Avengers universe or the Marvel universe or whatever. Uh, <laughs> so, so let me ask you this. Um, 
you've indicated this is kind of where the uh, the, the the water industry is go, the building industry is going in reuse. What are can you can you kind of outline the policy framework that that cities and local governments are undertaking that might be you know creating the need for for on-site wastewater reuse? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So look, I think. You know, we're dealing with the same macro trends that the rest of the industry is dealing with, which is to say we've got, you know, these vast networks of, of centralized infrastructure of facilities and of pipes that were put in anywhere from 30 to 100 years ago. You know, in San Francisco, as an example, we have a thousand miles of pipeline under our streets, 300 miles of that. So 300 percent, uh, sorry, 30 percent uh, was put in over 100 years ago. You know, and, and the rate at which we're repairing that is, you know, five to ten miles a year and take that multiply it by the rest of the country, you know, the rate at which our cities are growing, our populations are growing, we can't fix our infrastructure fast enough if we continue to just build back the same way we built it originally. So on-site reuse provides an opportunity to supplement the sort of the broader municipal infrastructure that we have, where we have decentralized and centralized working together to create an overall more resilient system, much in the same way that decentralized energy production, whether it's solar or wind or hydro, can supplement centralized energy production. So that's the, sort of the, the macro trends as to why there's a space for on-site reuse. Um, San Francisco, and to get to the policy piece, San Francisco is actually the first city in the country to require that all new large real estate development projects over 100,000 square feet have to have on-site water recycling, meaning they have to capture wastewater, whether it's gray, black, rain, storm, they have to capture that, treat it, and then reuse it for non-potable applications. So things like toilet flushing, irrigation, cooling towers, or even laundry. And, and the premise of it is really simple. You know, it was in the last drought back in 2015, one of our elected officials in partnership with our utility here, this, the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission said, look, we're in a drought. People are struggling. Why are we still using fresh water from Hetch Hetchy from our national parks to flush our toilets in downtown San Francisco to flush toilets for Twitter's employees when we can be instead capturing and manufacturing water right on site at the source for those non-potable applications? So that's the, the basic framework of it. It's very common sense, but it really was just a matter of bringing together all the relevant stakeholders and the public health officials and the utility to come up with a framework that made it clear, uh, you know, if I'm a building, how do I actually go about doing this? Yeah, got it. So San Francisco is the first city in the nation that has required that on-site reuse. Are you seeing that uh, be, be, you know, copied in other locations? I think what you're referencing is what we like to call it Epic, the, the water reuse revolution. <laughs> so yes, uh, we are seeing it. You know, I think a lot of other cities have on have have provisions for for on-site water reuse, uh, sort of in the real estate sector or for wineries and breweries. San Francisco is the first one to to sort of go this far and actually require it for all new large buildings. And you know, by our count, there's a few dozen projects uh, now that you know will be having on-site systems. We are actually operating the first approved on-site reuse system in downtown San Francisco. Uh, it's in a in a 30, 39 story residential high rise with one of the largest developers in the country, um, but Los Angeles similarly has regulations that require buildings over twenty five stories to uh, supply one hundred percent recycled water for their cooling tower makeup water. Um, places like Austin, Texas, 
uh, recently launched their own on-site reuse uh, incentives. So actually incentivizing projects to, to incorporate on-site reuse, which will eventually translate a uh, transition into a mandate. And, you know, throughout the country, Tampa, Denver, New York, a lot of different cities are looking at on-site reuse as a way to, you know, essentially strengthen this, the, 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 the city's water supply. It's a way to hedge against future shortages, against future periods of water insecurity. And it's not a replacement for centralized infrastructure, but you know, it's essentially saying, how do we diversify our water supply portfolio? And so you're seeing more and more across the country, cities and counties adopting on-site reuse as just a, as a, a good insurance measure. Yeah, I, I, I like the way that you've you've positioned that. Now, earlier you talked about the essentially the distribution system and the conveyance system uh, in terms of, you know, I think you referenced 30 percent um, is over 100 years old in San Francisco. Of the, I think that was the distribution system you were yes. mentioning. And, and you've also just talked about the water supply and how reuse really helps with water supply. What how, how do you view the the uh oh the relationship between water supply and the actual distribution or conveyance system uh in how reuse helps those helps those out yeah so you know look i think you know to our ultimate goal as a company is you know take take a state like california right now we are pumping water from the north over mountains down to the south and it's an amazing system you know, it's a, it's a marvel of modern engineering, but we can do better. You know, we can get to a point where San Francisco and, you know, or, or I should say Northern California and Southern California have their own locally sourced water supplies. And that comes from all forms of water reuse, both centralized, you know, you have places obviously like San Diego and Los Angeles who are developing their own, uh, their own water reuse capabilities. But, you know, we spend an incredible amount of energy as a, as a state and as a country, just moving water from point A to point B. So, you know, I think there's, this really gets into the water energy nexus as well, but, you know, I think we need to get to a point where every community has their own locally sourced water supplies, where we don't need to send water hundreds or thousands of miles away, where we don't need to spend all that energy. And in the event of some sort of catastrophic event, like an earthquake, where those lines can be interrupted, you know, it, it provides resilience and security. So I think um, there, there's a, I mean, the, in terms of increasing the water supply, sort of the, the security and then the distribution network, I think they go hand in hand. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you because, uh, you know, the, in, the best way to uh, increase your supply is to reuse the water you've already got. So um, I think that's, that's a, a wise point. Um, what about onsite power usage? uh, for a reuse system. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah. So, you know, it, it, again, it depends on exactly what's, what's going on. So, you know, our approach, we are big believers that there is no waste in wastewater. So, um, in addition to actually capturing and and treating that water, we actually produce uh, three outputs in total. So we are capturing that wastewater. We are producing clean water that we can recycle back into the building we are producing high quality soil amendments, again, all based off of the initial work we, we did with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And then we're also uh, recapturing wastewater heat. And that's a piece where sort of I'm, we're really excited about this whole notion of, you know, we, we use an incredible amount of energy to heat up water in a building for showers, for dishwashers, for laundry. All of that heat typically just goes off into the sewer. 
And by our calculations, there is enough heat uh, being lost in our sewers every single year that were we to recapture that, we could power every single electric vehicle on the road. So one of the things that we do uh, to leverage our technology is that we are actually capturing that wastewater heat and using it to do things like preheat the building's domestic hot water. So just by preheating that water, that city water coming in just a little bit using the energy from, from the wastewater that we capture, uh, it can translate into huge energy savings for the building. And, and you know, we have one project we're working on now where they're going to be able to reduce their domestic hot water energy needs by 30%, which represents a 2% reduction in the building's overall energy usage. So, um, you know, it's really, it, honestly, this whole notion of moving away from wastewater treatment to resource recovery is really exciting. And it's definitely a very new field in the building sector, because I think, you know, buildings, whether you're working with engineers, architects, contractors, developers, they're still very much in the the flush and forget mentality that we live in this society, which is to say they never think about what happens after they flush the toilet. When they turn on the tap, they assume water is going to come out. So what we're doing is definitely different and it's very new for a lot of these players. But once we show them the combined savings on the water side, on the soil, you know, meaning diverting organics from landfill on what we can recapture in that wastewater heat, um, people get very excited and, you know, we're, we're going to get to a point where, these systems will be energy neutral or even energy producers. Yeah. What now, what about, um, uh, you know, following up on the resource recovery stuff, you, you mentioned you're in a 39, well, I think it was a 39 story, uh, yes. residential building. Is there any difference in what a residential building with the soil, rec- you know, that soil uh, product that you develop, um, from, from, the soil product from a residential building for, you know, versus an office building versus some other type of facility. Yeah, no. So it's a great question. Um, and you know, it's definitely one of our, our favorite topics, uh, because it is so unusual that we are actually capturing wastewater organics, you know, within a, a high rise or an office building and turning it into soil. Um, so one of the things that we found is that when you're collecting solids in a building, um, you know, we're, we're capturing those solids, seconds after someone flushes a toilet. So when you, you know, conventionally, when you sort of are operating at a wastewater treatment plant, all of the, all the wastewater, all the organics leave the buildings, they go into the sewers and they swirl around for, you know, hours or days to get to the wastewater treatment plant. And when by the time they get there, they're broken down, they start to dissolve. And then the wastewater treatment plant has to spend an incredible amount of energy and resources to actually reconstitute those solids, whether it's screening them, or adding flocculants to bring them back together, uh, we don't have that problem. You know, we're capturing everything so far upstream that it's all very intact. And actually, when you look at it, uh, it's it's very light. It's in, I mean, light in color. And part of that is that's all that's all that toilet paper that would typically break down in the sewer. Uh, that doesn't occur for us. And so, um, you know, we end up being able to produce an extremely high quality soil product with great characteristics. Uh, and you know. We understand that this is a pretty out there concept for folks. So we actually built a, what we call our Epic showcase garden in downtown San Francisco. We took over an old Honda dealership. Uh, We took a a plot of land right in the middle of downtown San Francisco and we planted an entire garden. uh, That's all, all wastewater solids that we sourced from Stanford university, which is where we did our our initial 18 months of testing. And then from one of our, our building projects in downtown San Francisco, uh, a high rise right between the Uber Twitter and square headquarters. And so we planted this garden, uh, which, you know, just to 
just to make sure we're having fun with it. You know, we, we have uh, a few sinks and old toilets that we, uh, we, we spray painted gold just to show people just how, how much of a treasure this so-called waste in wastewater is. And we have a, a whole garden that we, we, we bring people now and we talk about resource recovery and we have them eat uh, snap peas out of our repurposed toilet planters. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and, and there's nothing like that to really drive home to, to people that, you know, water reuse and resource recovery is okay because, you know, it, it, you need to experience it, I think, um, physically, or you need to be around it in order for it to really get driven home. I, that's, I guess that's just my perspective. Any, any thoughts on how the recept public reception has been concerning? Yeah. That? Yeah. Look, I, I think what you're seizing upon is, you know, there's just an inherent yuck factor in what we do. You know, as a society, we've been conditioned to think that, you know, this, to- you know, things we put down the drain or down, down our toilets is waste. It's bad. And obviously there's a public health explanation for, for why we are, why we believe that, but um, we do have to battle that in, in terms of people being comfortable with everything that we're doing. Cause for some folks, you know, they see us putting a wastewater treatment and reuse system into their basement. And then, you know, it just, for them, it's a sewage recycling machine. Um, so it's, it, it is definitely something we have to contend with, but we have found that by taking a science first approach and just helping people to understand that it is safe. Um, people are very receptive to it. And then when we sort of take it a step further and we plant a garden with upcycled wastewater organics, or we, you know, we've served recycled wastewater beer at conferences. Um, the reception has been really positive. And I'll, I'll give you one, I'll give you one final story, which is that we were running a pilot in a, a, a 34 story high rise in downtown San Francisco. This is a residential high rise with 754 apartments, almost exclusively tech folks living in there. And, uh, you know, so we were operating, you know, in the basement of this building, uh, you know, most of the residents didn't even know what was going on. We, we, we tapped into an existing sanitary line within this building and we're basically, you know, funneling wastewater through the system and trying some different things. NBC Bay area came through, uh, they did a little uh, a short three-minute piece on Epic Clean Tech, which anyone can listening here can go Google NBC Epic Clean Tech, and um, you know they, as always happens, they said they'd give us a, a few days heads up for when that video would be released. Of course, uh, we got about 15 minutes heads up, meaning that video came out. It went across San Francisco news, and we sort of were sitting and, and waiting to see what the reception of of the residents in the building who saw this how they would feel about it. So we waited uh, and then the, the building managers contacted us and said, our residents are just so ecstatic about what's going on to feel that they're part of some big science experiment, that they're part of this, this pioneering sustainability approach. And the residents of the building started requesting tours of the system uh, that was, were down in the basement. So you know, I think there is a lot of sort of commonly repeated knowledge in the water industry that people aren't ready for this, that water reuse um, is, is, you know, people, the, the, the yuck factor, the public perception is just too hard to overcome. But anecdotally, we've seen, uh, that people, especially now are much more receptive to it than you would imagine. Yeah. That's, that's a great story. Great story. Let me ask you this has, um, uh, you're obviously talking about in water reuse systems in fairly large structures. Do you, do you see the technology progressing to the point where this could kind of be installed on a home by home basis? 
So it's a good question. And, you know, there are systems out there that, that are sort of more specifically designed for a home by home case. Um, you know, we are more sort of advocates for district or community scale systems. So rather than, you know, having to have individual systems at each home, which, you know, obviously is a lot of materials, it's a lot of complexity, it's a lot of maintenance. Instead, you can have a single system that can service, you know, let's say uh, a few hundred homes in a subdevelopment. Um, that is more our approach. Um, you know, I think the, the, the jury's still out on what's going to make more sense. And, you know, I, I, I know a few folks uh, who are specifically designing systems, you know, to be home gray water systems, but you know, the thing about wastewater is it's a, it's, it's a, it can be finicky, you know, it's a, it's a tricky thing to deal with. It does require maintenance. Anyone who says, you know, the system is set it and forget it. Um, well, I, <laughs> I, 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 I question, I question that assertion. Um, but you know, we, we are, are definitely big believers in sort of these sort of mini grids, um, that can serve as communities that can serve as large developments that can serve as a campus, whether that's a university campus or, or, uh, you know, a, an office. So that's our approach. Um, you know, and especially when you start getting into heat recovery and, and solids management, that would just require a huge amount of logistics and infrastructure. If all of a sudden you're having to go to every single home to collect, you know, wastewater solids, which is why, uh, at least for the time being, our approach is going to be focusing on, on more of a, a density and, and sort of a, a larger scale. Got it. So let me ask you this, Aaron. Um, uh, it feels like in the U.S. we're at the fairly early stages of water reuse can you kind of put the u.s in context um you know for where where where's the u.s in relation to other countries uh in on a water reuse you know scale yeah no it's a so it's a great point so you know i think i used to live in israel um and and i spent a lot of time there so israel as a nation recycles 90 percent of the wastewater it produces so that you know israel is the global leader when it comes to sort of the management of wastewater uh, of using it efficiently, routing a lot of that treated water to ag. Uh, I think the next best country is Spain, which is somewhere around the 35%, uh, recycling 35% of their wastewater. And the U.S. is, I think, hovering in the single digits, somewhere around the 3 to 4% range. So, you know, I think a lot of people would look at that uh, and say, well, you know, the Israel is not, you know, United States is not Israel, which is true. You know, Israel is tiny. Um and the second piece is, you know, I think a lot of people would be disappointed by that figure, but we look at it and we say, okay, so the, the, this, this nation is only recycling 3% of its wastewater. Great. That means we've got a lot of opportunity to, to do more. And, and frankly, I think water reuse um, is really low hanging fruit. We have the technologies. We've had the technologies for decades to be able to treat wastewater, both to non-potable and, and potable standards. And we're hearing a lot more about, you know, even direct potable reuse. Um, we have the technologies. It's just a matter of, of deploying it. And I think that's where smart policy and forward thinking regulation comes into play. Because, you know, one of the things we've seen is that the reason why buildings have not been recycling wastewater en masse for the last few decades has really very little to do with the technology, but it has everything to do with, you know, risk averse regulators who, who rightly so are concerned about public health. Um, but all it really takes is to come up with a playbook, you know, with a step-by-step checklist of, you know, if I'm San Francisco, how do I go about doing this? And it means bringing together public health, the building inspection folks, the water, wastewater utility, and then, you know, educating 
educating the, 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 the folks in the industry, the stakeholders, the architects, the engineers, the developers, the contractors. And, you know, it's a, it's a process and it's a learning process, but you know, this started in San Francisco a few years ago. And now, you know, you have, you have plumbing contractors who are extremely well-versed on all things water reuse. They understand how to integrate it into a building. And, uh, and so all of that, even though San Francisco is just one city, it gives me a lot of optimism for what this country can do both on the centralized as well as the decentralized levels. Yeah. I I love your uh, glass half full mentality. And, um, I, frankly, I'm surprised that the U S the U S is in the three to 4% range for recycling. I thought it would be much less. Um, so I think that, uh, you're right. There's absolutely a tremendous opportunity for water reuse in the U S. Um, Aaron, I don't want to let you get away before you, you mentioned earlier, your background was in politics and you, we've talked yeah. about policy a little bit. What can the water sector do better in the policy arena to, to promote policies that ha- promote good water stewardship? Yeah. You know, look, I'll, I'll say this. Um, the first thing I'll say is that, you know, I have the vantage point of coming from outside of this industry and entering into the water industry. I, I, I look around and I see, you know, what I consider sort of frontline heroes. These are, it's, it's an industry made up of, of, of water and wastewater professionals who work, you know, oftentimes 24 seven through holidays to make sure that these systems function, you know, that our water and wastewater systems continue to function. And, and before I entered this industry, it's not really something I thought about a lot. And so what that made me realize, and this is not going to be an original thought. We hear this a lot in the water industry, but we need to be telling our story better. I think one of the biggest issues for the water and wastewater industry is that we are not as good as, uh, as other industries in terms of telling the water story, why this is critical. And of course, why, why all of this is significant is that, you know, people who are going to be approaching their elected officials who are making laws, who are making policies, if, if they are not aware that water and wastewater issues are, are of utmost importance, they're not going to advocate for change on those issues. You know, when I look around at the state of water, wastewater infrastructure today, and, you know, we see different statistics being bandied around of, you know, we're going to need a trillion dollars over the next 25 years to overhaul all of our water, wastewater infrastructure. When I look at the state of the infrastructure today, you know, part of the, in my mind, the reason that we're in this position is that, you know, all this infrastructure was put in and it worked great. Now, if you're an elected official, whether it's, you're on the, the local, the city, the, the county, the state or the federal level, it's a lot sexier to get elected to office on a platform of I'm going to fix our schools and our playgrounds and our libraries then I'm going to, then I'm going to fix our water and wastewater infrastructure and I'm going to dig up the streets and mess up your morning commute. And so you've had decades and decades of, of elected officials for whom water and wastewater has not been a key part of their platform. Um, but we're getting to a point now where it can't be ignored anymore. I think Flint, Michigan uh, was frankly a, a very tragic wake-up call for the nation and for our elected leaders that we need to be doing more. And I think obviously, you know, there's a lot of conversation now in the wake of the, the bipartisan infrastructure plan that we're looking at water and wastewater in a much different way. But even still, um, you know, I think there's a lot of things to be celebrated, but it all comes down to being able to tell that story to getting people excited and feeling that this is a priority that they need to be going out to speaking with their elected officials to lobbying for actionable items and regulatory changes to overhaul our infrastructure. So we're making progress, 
But I think it all comes back to um, making sure that people understand just how critical these issues are. Yeah. Very wise words, I'd say. Um, Aaron, you've been absolutely terrific today. I've really enjoyed uh, our conversation and learning a little about uh, water reuse on the scale that you're providing it on. Uh, do you have a, before we kind of say goodbye, do you have a, a leave behind message you'd like to to get out there? Yeah, look, you know, I think especially with, with a lot of the folks, uh, you know, listening who, who are from the water industry, uh, for whom, you know, this whole notion of onsite reuse is, is definitely a change to the status quo and how we've done things. I think the most important thing uh, is that we don't view, we, we don't view it as decentralized versus centralized. It's not one or the other, um, but it's actually the two working in tandem to create overall more, more sort of comprehensive resilience systems. You know, onsite reuse is not going to be a fit everywhere. We know that. Um, but in the places where it does make sense, it can actually lead to significant savings for central utilities. You know, there are many different pain points that onsite reuse can help alleviate, whether it's on the water supply issue or on the wastewater treatment side. And so I think, uh, you know, I just, I, I'm, I'm a huge advocate for, you know, working very closely with our, our municipal partners to make sure that, you know, these types of decentralized onsite solutions work and actually help uh, the central utilities. So, um, you know, this is, this is my kumbaya moment where I'm saying we can, we should all be working together. Yeah. Very good. All right. Well, Aaron, again, you've been terrific, absolutely phenomenal and uh, have really enjoyed this conversation. And for those who want to find out more about you, more about Epic Clean Tech, where can they go to get that information? Yeah, they can go directly to our website. So that's epiccleantechtec.com. And we're obviously also on a on social media. And uh, if, they, if anyone wants to see the video of, uh, of our, our pilot from NBC, you just Google Epic Clean Tech and NBC and uh, you'll find us. Awesome. Well, Aaron, again, thanks so much. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Appreciate it. You bet. Bye. What a terrific interview by Aaron. Grounded in practical insights from a leader in the water reuse space. I cannot wait to see the big things that he and Epic Clean Tech do in the coming years and decades in the water reuse space. So just uh, so fortunate to have Aaron on the podcast. So thanks, Aaron, for coming on. Would love to know what you thought about the interview as well. So please check out the show notes for the page for links and information on the episode. Just Google the Water Values Podcast and click the first link that comes up. That's our landing page at Bluefield Research's website. Of course, as I state every every episode, Bluefield and the Water Values LLC are not affiliates. We just have a joint marketing arrangement. And as part of that, Bluefield is kind enough to give us a home on the web. So thanks so much. You can also tweet about the podcast using the hashtag water values and tweet at me using my handle at DTM1993. You can email me at david.mcgimsey at dentons.com and you can sign up for the water values newsletter at the landing page on Bluefield's site as well. So thank you again for tuning in and I hope you make it a great day. Plus, I want to give a huge thank you to our sponsors. Again, sponsors of the water values podcast for the 2022 season include Interra, Xylem, the American Water Works Association, Black & Veatch, Can Do, Mentor APM, 374 Water, and Woodard and & Curran. This show would not be possible without those great companies and industry leaders. And again, thank you for your support and for listening. I can't tell you how good it feels to be part of the water industry with such caring and dedicated participants and professionals that I get to work with and interact with every day. So thank you so much. 
Finally, and in closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Well, thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Indiana and Colorado, and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or with anyone else. Additionally, nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.